Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24. Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new Redefining Cybersecurity Podcast with Sean Martin. Have you ever thought that we're selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Well, perhaps we are. Let's look at how we can organize a successful information security program that integrates business culture with people, process, and technology to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. Hello, everybody. You're very welcome to a new episode of Redefining Cybersecurity Podcast here on the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. This is Sean Martin, your host. And uh, if you follow me, you know that I'm all about helping organizations and teams within the orgs operationalize security and privacy to, uh, to enable the business to achieve new heights and protect the revenue and growth that they, that they generate. And shows redefining cybersecurity, but there's certainly a tremendous overlap uh, with privacy in terms of uh, what's possible, what's legal, what's ethical, and not. <laughs> and therefore, you have, you have policies and controls and measurements and audits and all kinds of stuff on both sides of the fence. And, and in the middle is some the Venn diagram, if you will, where things cross over. Today, we're going to talk a bit more about privacy. And I, I suspect we'll dip into security as well, because it's hard not to. And I'm thrilled to have uh, Damien on today. Damien, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, thanks, Sean. And all the invitation good to uh, and, uh, get, get me the chance to talk about this stuff. Absolutely. And a uh, quick shout out to Katarina Corner, uh, who introduced us. So thanks to her for uh, making the introduction. And Speaking of introductions, Damien, if you can uh, share a few words with our audience about some of the things you've done, your current role, and why this uh, this topic is is one of interest to you. That sounds good. So I'm Damien. I uh, I'm French. I live in Switzerland, in beautiful city of Zurich, and my main focus is on uh, these concepts that we call differential privacy, which is an anonymization a tool to anonymize data that helps you share or publish data uh, from sensitive information in a safe way. Um, I focused, I uh, focus on this uh, in my current role, which is at a startup called Tumult Labs, uh, which is uh, specializing in building and selling differential privacy technology and advice to uh, organizations. 
Before that, I was leading the anonymization team at Google uh, and in parallel, or anonymization consulting team at Google. And in parallel, I uh, was working in my PhD thesis in anonymization, computer science, differential privacy at ETH, big university in Zurich. Love it. A lot, lot of, uh, lot of research you've done. We'll include a link to your website with links to some of that stuff, and um, a lot of work, a lot of, uh, a lot of partnerships as well. I think with with folks looking at this. So um, I'm very excited to hear about you. And I think you have, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of experience to share today. So we're gonna focus in on uh, it's NIST SP. 800-226, so it's an initial public draft of the guidelines for evaluating differential privacy guarantees. And I saw a post from Katharina that, that prompted me to say, well, I, I want to learn a little bit more about this, and I figured my audience would want to know more about it as well. So I think before we get into the draft itself, uh, which is open for, for – uh, review and, and comments until the 25th of January, by the way. Uh, can you describe what differential privacy is? Maybe kind of what it is and if it relates to things or is different from other things that uh, you think folks would be uh, need to know. <laughs> I think that would be a great place to start. That sounds good. So differential privacy is a technology that solves the problem of sharing or publishing uh, information, typically aggregate statistical information or machine learning models from very sensitive data. Typically, uh, when you're an organization that uh, maybe collects a whole bunch of data about usage of your app or demographic information like for a government agency or any kind of data, really, you might want to take some of the data and compile it and share it with a third party. But of course, you can't just do that, so like take all your database and give it to like anybody who asks for obvious security and privacy reasons, right? So, um, one of the you know, one of the ways you can achieve that uh, we can achieve that kind of business objective is by anonymizing the data, making the data so that it's no longer personal data. You can share it with somebody, and they can learn useful information out of it, uh, do some analytics, uh, statistics, science but not actually learn that a specific person in the database you know, has some specific attribute, like their demographic information or their credit cards uh, spend or something like this. So uh, in the past, or at least uh, currently, even today, a lot, of, a lot of times when it comes to anonymizing data, uh, people still use uh, you know, legacy techniques, like, oh, we can just remove the names and of the obvious identifiers of the data before sharing it. The problem is that we know, we as in computer scientist experts, um, we know that it doesn't quite work this way. If you just remove some obviously identifying information like names, email addresses, phone numbers, and so on from the data, it's not going to prevent a motivated adversary from looking at the de-identified data, or we call this de-identified in Europe, in, 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 in the US, it's more called anonymization. Um, and then re, like finding who exactly is part of that data set and then recovering sensitive data from, from that information. And uh, you know, there's been many, many years of research in, that shows that 
um, even techniques that are a little bit, that seem a little bit more safe, like things that we call anonymity or just aggregation, just comparing statistics, even those can leak some information often, especially when you have large amounts of statistics about uh, the database in question. One very high profile example where this happens is the 2010 uh, census, decennial census in the US. So the US, every 10 years, they collect all of the information, a bunch of demographic information about every single person living in the US. And then they compile a whole bunch of statistics that they then publish. Uh, in, you know, in between, after they released some data in 2010, they realized that actually when you take all of that data and all of these statistics, uh, you can use them and do uh, what we call the reconstruction attack to take these statistics and go back to the original data, allowing you know, malicious people to take the statistics and retrieve information that was supposed to be uh, secret. Differential privacy is a mathematical technique that solves these problems. Uh, that provably uh, using you know, strong mathematical foundation uh, guarantees that you can't do this anymore. That the statistics that you're releasing have a controlled amount of uh, you know, sensitive information in them in a way that you can you know, guarantee that reconstruction of attack are impossible or that uh, you can't go back to having uh, yeah, single person's attribute based on the, based on the shared data. So let me ask you this, uh, Damien. Uh, so uh, a guideline from NIST that turns into a framework or something else that an organization can follow uh, is important and but only valuable in my opinion if people follow it. <laughs> and, yeah. and where and where I think things become really interesting in the age of of AI and massive data sets out there, uh, multiple entities could come together, even an entity can come together and pull multiple data sets together and purposefully not follow mm -hmm. that, uh, that guideline, right? So how, what are your thoughts on where this fits in? Is it, is it designed to help organizations that, that want to do the right practices and, and achieve a level of, of trust that their customers and their and their partners can attain is that who it's targeted at or is there is there a different um, purpose for this do you think i think i think you got this right basically um the kind of people who are going to be very interested in the guidelines and some uh, understanding like where where the ends where the draft ends up after uh, the comments is um people who want organizations who want to um solve this problem of publishing or sharing more data, uh, for example, government agencies who want to publish more statistical information about the people they serve, or nonprofits who compile sensitive information and then give it to you know, lawmakers or public policy folks, or organizations that want to monetize the data that they have on their own customers or users. So um, if you're in this situation um, today, especially with you know uh, GDPR and all of the other uh, you know, changes in the compliance space around security and privacy, you might want to make sure that before you do that, you have a clear picture of what the additional risk you're incurring by you know, sharing more data or publishing more data. You want to be able to make sure that the business value you're getting out of this or the, the mission value, the, the fact that you're accomplishing more of your mission by publishing more data, for example, if you're a government agency, uh, is 
like makes sense when it comes to the risk, the additional privacy risk you're taking and you're incurring to the people in your databases. So differential privacy is a way of solving that, but it's still a fairly recent concept. It's been invented uh, a bit over 15 years ago, but it's only since a few years that there's really been you know, uh, software libraries and tools that allow it that allow you to use this and to actually generate differential privacy, differential private data more easily. So I think a lot of people who are not experts, a lot of a lot of organizations who do not have the you know the deep expertise than folks like other very big tech companies like Google or uh, you know uh, vendors like us at the Merge Labs have, they want to ask, okay, if if a certain vendor tells me they're doing the right thing with my data, if they're helping me generate differential price statistics, or if one of my partners claim they're anonymizing data in a certain way, how can I evaluate this claim? How can I make sure that I'm doing the right thing or that my partners are doing the right thing? And this is what I, I think is really exciting about the fact that NIST is now going to publish guidelines about this. It's because it's going to give people uh, the tools to understand how to evaluate claims of you know, being responsible with data sharing or data publication without needing to get into the deep weeds of how stuff works behind the scenes and what is the what is the exact uh, rights uh, thing that's being done to the data. So maybe uh, some thoughts on how organizations might approach the guide. I guess, who's the intended audience? Is, is it limited to privacy? folks or i mean the other one that comes to mind clearly is uh data data owners so the dpo or, or the folks who are responsible for privacy and data certainly obviously based on my introduction people in security who have have the the controls and the dials to protect the data in certain cases but we're talking about enabling data so maybe controls is the the best way to look at this so who who should be reviewing the guidelines and understanding how it fits into the organizational operations? So I think the, the two types of roles that come to mind are, um, you know, the one you mentioned. On one side, you've got data owners, people like, you know, um, data protection officers who want to understand how technology like differential privacy fits within their overall um, you know, approach to privacy governance, data governance and uh, how it can help, uh, how they can use it to help with their compliance obligations while enabling the, the business use cases they're interested in. So those are a perfect sort of public for the guide because it's gonna help them understand what are the decisions that need to be made on a specific use case in order to use differential privacy on it. When somebody tells me they've used differential privacy, what do they actually mean? Like, which you know, there's, there's subtleties to the definition and to the context in which it can be applied. Uh, what's the exact threat model? What are the exact privacy parameters? What is what we call the unit of privacy? Um, do we have a reason to believe that the implementation actually satisfies that definition? Because implementing differential privacy is kind of really hard, like cryptography. So all of these questions. Uh, I think are not only like the guidelines not only provides a list of which questions to ask and how to answer, but also gives them an, an understanding of like what's what they should be sort of checking for, what they can be, what what they should be, what questions they should be asking, and what are the sort of best answers, best practices in in the field. The other um, public is the people who are actually working with data, data data analysts, data scientists, and so on, because these are the, often the folks that on the ground 
you know, in practice are going to you know, generate either generate data using default privacy to share it with uh, you know, other companies or other organizations or with the public at large. They are going to be compiling the data. They are going to be using the libraries. So they need. They are going to be the first that have to answer these questions in practice, like what should be, what should my exact privacy notion be? What are the privacy parameters I should use, and so on. Or they might also uh, be the ones that receive the data that was shared by some other organization using differential privacy. And so understanding what happened behind the scenes for them, and you know how whether they should, you know how well they should be protecting the data is the data really anonymized, or uh, you know are there some things that are uh, you know, that indicate that care should be taken when handling and passing the data around. Um, I think all of those questions are typically what, what, the, what the guidelines are tackling and, uh, um, you know, offering, offering some, some answers for. So uh, let me ask you this. So things like ChatGPT, I know there are other models and, and interfaces and APIs people can plug into, but that's the one I'm most familiar with. I'm just wondering, can something like that access pools and buckets of data that potentially could expose data that should otherwise remain private? Do you think? I mean, I, I think we are we're beyond possibly now, right? I think <laughs> uh, I think it's known now that the you know these lo very large language model trained by various companies. Um, are trained on you know publicly available data. I think mostly. Some I don't, right. some that, yeah, now yeah. that they are being also secretive about it, we don't quite know what data they're being trained on. But one of the hard bits about it is that we know that these models memorize verbatim some information from the their training data sets, and that has very big implications for you know at least two aspects. One of them is copyright, which I'm not an expert of, but we've seen it with the recent. Um, uh, the recent lawsuit from the New York Times against OpenAI, where they say, "Look, if we pass some words to open so to ChatGPT, they just spits out the entire text of New York Times articles." So that's a problem for copyright, right? But the same problem is also a problem for privacy, uh, because if you start, you know, writing a person's name and getting their phone number back, uh, well, that's that feels like something that should not happen uh, with with these large language models. And my understanding is that these companies are developing sort of ad hoc protections. Uh, ad hoc mitigations that try to prevent their users from doing that. But it's fundamentally a very hard problem because uh, I think memorization is very much uh, you know, a phenomenon that's going to happen uh, with, like, with, na with naive, like with classical training of these, of these machine learning models. And so the only question is like, can you, be, you know, can you craft a prompt that's smart enough to extract that information from the model? And, and there, you know, attackers are often much much better at doing that than defenders are at protecting it. Yeah. Um, so to come back to differential privacy here, techniques like differential privacy can potentially be used in this context. Uh, so there is a lot of papers around how to uh, train a machine learning model in a differentially private way to prevent inadvertent leakage of information. Uh, but it's more like it's it's more science than uh, you know, press a button and deploy your and deploy it in practice uh, as of now, right? Especially at the scale of these very large language models, I don't think, I don't think things are quite ready for for prime time. But this is definitely a direction in which uh, you know, in in the AI community, people should and are paying attention to trying to understand whether we could use this for more 
formally proven techniques to you know uh, make sure that the, the the machine learning models are learning about the global distribution of the data, are learning useful statistics, are able to like you know do what they need to do in terms of either generating outputs or you know doing classifying, doing being a classifier or something like this. Uh, while preventing the risk that some information is leaked in, in the process about specific specific individuals. So from from the organizations that provide the uh, large language models interfaces, uh, be it be it web or APIs, is it? I know the answer is it's their responsibility, but you said they're they're doing ad hoc control. So to me, that sounds like oh. oh crap, we forgot and we need to add this to ensure or we've, we're uncovering something, so we, now we need to go back. So in in the absence of that, individuals, perhaps, but most certainly organizations who are using these, um, even these uh, large language models and the data that comes out of their prompts, um, is there any risk to them not following something like this NIST guideline where they're actually receiving information now. Um, ah, not, ah, so perhaps not even so, know, not knowing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I should probably like have, have a couple of disclaimers here. I'm not a machine learning expert. So I know how stuff works from a distance. Uh, and I, I, have a, I have a vague idea of like how differential privacy can be implemented in you know, model training, but it's really not my area of expertise. I really am typically focusing on statistical releases and, and this is what Thermal Labs, the company I work for, is also focusing on. And I think in, in cases of uh, you know, an organization receiving data, uh, like how to, you know, how to handle the data you're receiving from a third party, I think very often it's sort of a compliance question. And I'm also not a lawyer, so I'm not sure. Like, uh, you know, I, I don't know what are the implications for this. Uh, I, I completely agree with you that, you know, in principle, the responsibility lies on the, you know, on the shoulders of the people who are making information available in a certain way or compiling information and then giving it out in a certain way and so on. Um, I think one of the places where the guidelines could be helpful, uh, or at least to like push push the, the, the industry in a certain direction is that Sometimes you want a vendor to train to help you build machine learning models on your own data, so that then you can use that machine learning model. Either you can share it with a third party, monetize it, or you can put it in your app as part of a feature or something like this. So, in that case, you know, if the data that you have is personal data, if you don't have, uh, you know, if you're in, in, if you're covered by GDPR and you don't have a strong legal basis to, uh, you know. To achieve that, uh, and so you're interested in doing some anonymization uh, to be able to claim from a compliance standpoint that your data is no longer covered by GDPR because it's now like fully anonymized data. Then training the machine learning model in the differentially right way is like could be a real good option. And in some cases, I think, uh, but, you know, especially as we as we as we make progress on making it easier to use and as we make it more of a best practice, I my hope is that it's going to become a standard practice, not just something that you do if you if you're in a very high, you know, compliance risk use case, or uh, you know, if you're very very sensitive about your data. Um, I think today, you know, the use cases of differential privacy are 
growing, but still fairly small for now. The Thermal Labs, we see interest from, you know, companies that have already well-established, uh, you know, privacy programs and who are who really want to sort of get ahead of regulation, get ahead of industry trends when it comes to uh, what's your privacy story like, as well as in extremely regulated areas like, uh, you know, government agencies and what data they can publish from the, the, the you know, since the U.S. Census Bureau or the IRS in the, in the U.S. And, and so on and so forth. Um, Can you I describe think it's kind a of like, few, few of the yeah. use cases? I'm, I'm thinking like cases. financial services. Um, yeah, so in, yeah, in financial yeah. services. Housing um, market, you know, real estate market, mm -hmm. healthcare. Yeah. yeah, so basically I think uh, listeners of your podcast to do security and privacy are probably familiar with the situation where they want to share data with a third party, but they just can't. And it seems like there's, uh, you know, uh, so... To give concrete use cases, like in financial in the financial market, you could imagine, uh, you know, wanting to take some data about you know, credit card transactions or uh, some information, some financial information about individuals, and then monetizing that data in order to, you know, get something useful, learn something useful about market trends, or um, training a machine learning model to, uh, you know, in collaboration with others to detect frauds or to uh, you know, do forecast, financial forecasting to understand where, uh, you know, how the how certain how certain trends are going to evolve in terms of spend and so on. Um, in healthcare, different, we, we've seen people exploring differential privacy to do uh, uh, to basically cross the cross the compliance barrier, like uh, want to train a train a model or get uh, scientific information about how well a certain medication is working or uh, class, like build a machine learning model that classifies, do some classification and diagnostic data, except in use cases where this would not have been possible to do without a very strong anonymization um, story because healthcare data is so sensitive. And so we don't want to inadvertently, you know, like hospitals or people who hold medical information don't want this to inadvertently leak outside of um, Outside of the trusted uh, trusted environments, uh, a last use case that I can mention that's one that's uh, we've been working on at Tumult and we've published you know, case studies and papers and presentations about it is the Wikimedia Foundation, where they were interested in releasing data about how many people are visiting uh, you know Wikipedia pages every day. This is super sensitive because you can imagine that. Uh, you know, if you take some statistics like this and you figure out that a specific person, you know, read a specific uh, article about I don't know, uh, LGBT topics or certain political topics and so on, especially in certain areas of the world, this could be a really, really sensitive information. So they wanted to make sure that by, by publishing more statistics about that, they would not endanger the users. And they, they came to us and we had them publish every day uh, tens of million, millions of statistics uh, on uh, Wikipedia page views. So this is the kind of use case that differential privacy, differential privacy typically helps with, in addition to the government use cases I mentioned earlier. Yeah, I love it. And what, what I want to maybe get your thought on now is this word guarantee. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it strikes me, and as I was reading, reading the, the title of the publication, and I see that word guarantee in there, um, that makes me cringe a bit. So 
nothing is absolute even in technology yeah, in my opinion um yeah um the only way is to unplug power and then then you know but somebody could plug it back in so the absolute's gone from that even so talk to me a little bit about the guarantee and it, what what does that mean what 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 does that mean to whom i guess is the big question yeah. So I'll give you like uh, a two-sided answer to that question, one positive, and then I'll add some caveats. The positive answer is that you can see differential privacy as the equivalent of you know, modern cryptography, where cryptography was maybe like 20 or 30 years ago. You know, for a long time in cryptography, uh, the, the way that the field would move forward is that people would come up with like new techniques to you know, uh, obfuscate or encrypt data but they wouldn't formally prove, they wouldn't have like a mathematical, a mathematical proof that you know, decrypting this was impossible under certain computational assumptions. Right? They would like build a scheme that sounded reasonable to them and then people would come and they would like break it because uh, turns out that when you don't have sort of a strong mathematical founding for what you're doing, often you're not doing things very well. Today, if you come into a room full of cryptographers and you say, I designed a new cryptographic technique uh, and here's how it works. And I think it looks really hard to decrypt. So I think it's a good one. People will just laugh you out of the room, right? It, nobody will take you seriously. But 30 years ago, it wasn't really the case. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. Uh, it was kind of like, it took a long time for people to sort of realize you need a strong mathematical found, like foundation to actually make strong security happen. Um, Defaultral privacy is the same thing happening in the anonymization space. For you know, almost 20 years, people have been you know, coming up with new definitions of what it means for data to be anonymized, only for like a paper coming up the year after and say, oh, look, like here's a very concrete example in which this, this solution actually is completely broken and still allows me to retrieve information about individuals. And then differential privacy came around, and this is like fundamentally different because all of a sudden you could formalize what it means for somebody, what it means for data to be protected, what exactly is the maximum information that an actor can gain. And it has some really nice guarantees. Like it's not, it doesn't depend on what the attacker can do. It doesn't depend on what auxiliary data the attacker have has. If you if you use it multiple times, you can still you know keep track of your total risk over time. All of, all notions that all of the all of these sort of nice properties were not you know you, you couldn't you couldn't show them. In fact, they were wrong with the previous definition that were that were shown. So in a sense, this is what you know. This is what uh, the authors of these guidelines are referring to when they say guarantee. It means that th there is a strong mathematical foundation for it, and this is why you know we're pushing very strongly in favor of like we should adopt this for all of the anonymization use cases that we have right now, because all of the other stuff, like ad hoc stuff, is just gonna you know either we know it's broken, either we will know in five years that it's broken. Uh, no, so that's the that's the flip let side. Me, that's the let me side. let me ask you this. Yep. <laughs> Oh, that's the problem. All right, now you're going to go to negative. All right, go to negative, and then I'll, yeah, yeah. Then I'll ask my question. <laughs> yeah, you said something. You said something super true earlier. It says nothing's absolute, right? Like the the um, you know, there's no there's no there's no system that's going to be like completely hundred percent certain. And I like this is where I fully agree. And this is exactly what this guideline is actually saying, right? The guideline is basically telling like if you look at the the way they formalize it, they say you know. Differential privacy from from mathematical standpoint. Here's what it is, and here's like what it's you know what it protects, what it provides you. And they have this sort of concept of the pyramid, and they say this is at the top of the pyramid is the mathematical definition with the, the privacy parameter epsilon and the unit of privacy and the sort of the math. But then there's like in order for this to make sense, in order for the top of the pyramid to like make any sense, 
you need to also make sure that the bottom of the pyramid is also covered. And here are things like, you know, the data that you're doing anonymization for anonymization on. Well, it should be well protected because if an attacker manages to like get to the original data, it doesn't matter how well you did your anonymization, right? It's like completely uh, you, you you lost, right? Anonymization is just completely pointless. You should understand your threat model. You should understand like, okay, who's getting the data? What are they going to use it for? Who are they going to share it with? And understand like how this exposure like matters for the system you're building. Uh, between the mathematical definition and the actual implementation, again, it's like cryptography, right? RSA is very simple to like explain to uh, somebody with like a very pretty basic stand, uh, background in math. It's not very complicated from a theoretical standpoint. But implementing it correctly, you know, with it's safe against all possible attacks, for example, with you know, uh, fault injection and timing side channel attacks and so on and so forth, that's very hard. That's, you know, if you do this naively, you will 100% write code that is not actually safe. Default privacy is exactly the same way. And the guideline explain like, here's what you should be looking for, you know, for when you use, like, here are the, you know, the, the, the typical vulnerabilities that this implementation step can produce. And, you know, you should be aware of them and make sure that you have a strong story to mitigate those and so on. So this is where sort of, we have to be careful to say, like, we have to recognize the, like, how much better having a strong mathematical foundation puts our privacy story, our compliance story, our you know, ethical story even, when it comes to sharing and publishing data. And on the other side, we shouldn't just you know, say, oh, this uses this, this uses default enterprises, everything's fine. And we don't have to like, you know, look at it closely uh, to, to, to make sure that the, you know, the, the, the basics are also covered. Yeah, because yeah, I'm, I'm glad you described that whole other side of the coin, because I was thinking about PKI and, and I mean, super difficult to deploy at scale, yeah. especially, right? And a lot of exactly. room for error. And then you have the, oh, by the way, I, I posted my my key in, in GitHub anyway. So <laughs> anybody can access it, the, the decryption uh, regardless. And then you have the whole, well, the, to the data access point, if you're not putting controls around the data itself. And then that, that middle layer, the, the, the business logic, right? Um, even if you have the best processes at either end, if you're exposing them in different ways in the middle through the logic that uh, that exposes the data. Absolutely, all is all is not in, uh, in the NIST guideline. They even have this, yeah, in the NIST guideline, they even go like sort of one level below, and the, the very bottom of the pyramid of the conceptual pyramid they have is, you know, the most privacy-preserving system is the one where you don't collect the data in the first place. So even if you're using all of these, you know, fancy techniques, if what you want to do is, you know, completely minimize your privacy risk, your compliance risk, do good by your users, you should only collect the bare minimum you need to, you know, have the data. You shouldn't like collect data that you don't need uh, just because you can. And I, I really love that, you know, even in the guideline that's like, who's, you would think that's not the main topic. This is still like the fundamental basis of like one of all privacy work, right? Uh, be responsible with what you collect in the first place, even if you consider yourself as part of the trusted circle, like not the not the attacker. Yeah. So let, let's um, let's wrap here, and unless there's something else you wanna you wanna share before you go, you can certainly do that. But I I, I want to touch on how this fits into an organization's operations. Um, how how disruptive is a change to adopt? 
the guidelines that are that are being defined is it do apps have to be rewritten do databases have to be redeployed restructured do i don't know i mean i can go up and down the whole stack right but how, how impactful is this i think it's mostly impactful for the use cases in which you're using anonymization like for the use cases that were already identified as we are sharing data with third parties. We are publishing data to the world. Or even we are maybe you know, anonymizing some data so we can keep it forever in our own systems and still be within our compliance obligations. So this is where differential privacy is going to affect, that we're going to affect, is going to improve uh, you know, the, the privacy and compliance story there. Uh, for all of the stages around like you know data collection, access controls, and so on, this is not going to be a massive this is not going to be like you know really any change. It's really going to be about the use cases of data sharing, data publication, maybe data retention. One thing that we observe at the Melt Labs is um, you know, we see our customers adopt differential privacy, and the way it typically works is they have a particularly you know tricky data release that they're maybe not comfortable with doing. And they're like, oh, if we use differential privacy, this would make us more comfortable about doing this. And then they go and they hire us for you know, helping them do a feasibility study and or a pilot. And then you know, we show them, like, here's what you can do. Here's what you can publish. Here's what's the your privacy risk. Here's what the utility of this, the business value it gives you, et cetera. And then once they start doing that, they realize, oh, this can actually work in practice. Now, here is like five other use cases that we want, that you know, we would be interested in either replacing our existing anonymization methodology that is either we don't really feel good about or it's just not giving us the accuracy and the utility that we would like. We're gonna, let's try to see if we can do something better with differential privacy. Um, and, uh, or, oh, we have these things that we wanted to do for a long time, but we couldn't because it felt too iffy from a privacy or, or a compliance standpoint. But if we have a rock solid compliance story using differential privacy, this would make us feel much better about doing this. So let's try to do that to you know, uh, increase business value, accomplish more objectives, and so on. Uh, the one place that we've uh, seen that that I can talk about, because that is obviously confidential, is with the Wikimedia Foundation. You know, we started helping them publish statistics about uh, which web pages from Wikipedia were most, which article from Wikipedia were uh, most visited. And now, you know, since we started doing this one pilot with them two years ago, uh, since then they've published, I think, four, four, five, or six like new data, you know, data releases. Because now they understand how it works, they can systematize the process, and they can they can like they can publish more data, fat and share more data and faster than they used to do. Because you know, the one of the advantages of differential privacy, besides all of the mathematical stuff, is that it gives you a systematic way of handling data releases. It gives you a framework that sort of, uh, it simplifies, it, it makes some things that are very fuzzy, like how dangerous it is what I'm doing and how much utility am I getting out of that? Uh, what can I tell the people who are receiving the data about what has been done to the data? It simplifies a lot of this stuff. So once people are, once we train data analysts and engineers to do one different proprietary release, uh, you know, then they feel empowered to do two, three, and then people start identifying proactively new use cases that unlock, unlock values for the organization. Um, and so this is what we are seeing, and this is what uh, makes me super excited about being in this space. Well, it's a, it's a point that I, I try to end with, or at least touch on in every episode, which is there's an opportunity for technology and 
risk mitigation and controls to actually enable business to take place safely and securely. And it seems like one of those op opportunities for sure to, uh, to unlock some things, unlock some things that uh, weren't possible before. So I love it. Well, Damien, it's uh, a pleasure to meet you. I know we, for me, it seems like a lot, but I'm sure we only scratched the surface yeah. <laughs> with this. So uh, we'll, we'll leave links to your profile. Folks can get in touch with you there. And uh, of course, I'm gonna I'm gonna link to SP 800-226 and uh, the the post from Katarina who shed some light on this as well. And yeah, another area for people to investigate and learn and and adopt and, and apply. It seems like we have an opportunity to do some really cool stuff here. Yeah, it sounds good. And if any of your listeners, you know, is interested in either you know has follow up questions about this stuff or is uh, some of the stuff I said about like, oh, I want to share or publish some data, but I can't for compliance reasons. Like if that resonates with you, come talk to us. We're, uh, we're pretty good at solving this kind of stuff. Very good. Thank you, Damien. And uh, thanks to everybody for listening and watching. And uh, of course, please share with your friends and enemies and subscribe and stay tuned. Many more conversations here on Redefining Cybersecurity. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. Uh, thanks again for the invitation, Sean. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Cybersecurity with Sean Martin, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this show and ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand with our conversations, you can sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24.